0: Okay, we should do that one first. No, wait, you already called that one, didn't you? Evening of Prayer. Um, I commend it highly to you, particularly if you have a life group on Wednesday. Do what my life group does and try and get us all to come along and pray there. Um, particularly because this is our last in our six part series uh, on prayer, so it would be great to sort of follow up this part, this six part series on prayer, with this evening of prayer. Details in your bulletin to remind you, put in your phones, uh, come along and let's pray together as a body of God's people. Speaking of prayer, I'm going to pray and then we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you make it available to us so that we can know your will. We ask that you open up it up to our hearts and open up our hearts to your word. And we ask this in the name of your son Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is our sixth in our six part series on prayer, and we are talking about spiritual warfare. And I have trouble thinking of a term that is more likely to confuse a newcomer who arrives at a church uh, more than than spiritual warfare might. They expect a certain amount of Christianese when they come along to a church for the first time in a while. Uh, Most of it they can figure out by context, words like salvation, resurrection, and sanctification, those you can puzzle out. But spiritual warfare, Depending on how active your imagination is, that can be anything from an invasion of the Holy Land to a Ghostbusters reboot. But when we say spiritual warfare, what we mean, what we actually mean is the ongoing conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. The ongoing conflict between those two kingdoms. The God of heaven with all his angels engaged in a real conflict in the spiritual realm against the devil of hell and his minions and how humans participate in that war as agents of one side or the other or as the battlefield itself or as the prize or as bystanders and particularly in keeping with this recent series how prayer plays a role in that spiritual warfare. And it's an uncomfortable topic and it kind of has to be because it combines two ideas that seem to us, 21st century Australians, to be incompatible. We have war, which is unpredictable, dangerous, destructive and highly visible, and spirituality and prayer, which is disciplined, edifying, constructive and mostly confined to the invisible realms of the mind and the soul. So how do we resolve these ideas together and make sense of spiritual warfare? What impact should that resolution have on our prayer lives and our faith in general? That's what we're talking about. Now if we find out, as we have, that we're part of a war, the natural question to ask then is, against whom? Who are we fighting? Who is this Satan and what is he like? And in a moment we'll take a look at how scripture answers that question for us, but it's worth taking a moment first to acknowledge how our culture sees the enemy, how our culture sees the enemy and programs us to see the devil. After all, when I say the devil, everyone has some kind of image that pops into their head. Some of it may be informed more by pop culture than scripture. But, if we don't know where those ideas come from, we're likely to be led astray by them. And for us in, in the West, in the 21st century, really, we really have two big, mostly wrong ideas about who the devil is. And once you're familiar with these two ideas, you can see how they've been picked up and run with for hundreds of years. And they've been rolled into our culture. Neither of them is terribly accurate, but both impact the way that modern Australians think about the devil, whether or not they know why. And The first of these images comes from the 14th century poem, Inferno, uh, part of Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. He's an Italian uh, poet of extraordinary imagination. And now look, I'm, I'm sure most of us are reasonably familiar with the last 700 years of epic European poetry. But for the handful of us who aren't, who won't feel embarrassed, Inferno was essentially a tourist's guide through hell. Dante tells the poem in, in first person in which he is allowed to sort of descend through the layers of hell and witness that place in its dark, horrible majesty. He describes it as kind of a fiery dungeon kingdom. And if you've ever seen a, a cartoon demon with a pitchfork for poking sinners, this can be blamed on Dante. He describes hell as having nine progressively worse layers as they go down, each with a different ironic punishment for different kinds of sinner. And at the bottom of this pit is the ninth layer of hell, the frozen lake Cocytus, where only traitors are condemned, the very worst of sinners. And at the very center of that frozen lake, the ultimate irony, Satan himself, the king of hell, locked in the water at waist high, he beats his six wings, furiously trying to escape, but the icy wind he creates only hardens the ice further. He has three weeping heads and a parody of the triune God, and he spends eternity uh, attacking and mauling these three greatest human traitors. One of them is Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Christ. The other two are Brutus and Cassius, the Roman senators who betrayed Julius Caesar. Powerless and ignorant... The king of hell is this deformed, raging beast as Dante displays him. Now this is all largely a product of Dante's imagination. Scripture does not give us a detailed map of hell. It gives us a very limited amount of detail about hell. And not to mention Dante's Italian pride is showing when he puts Brutus and Cassius in the devil's teeth. Dante lived in a a broken and divided Italy And he had a romantic idea about the glory of Rome past and what Italy could have been if it hadn't been betrayed. He didn't intend this idea to necessarily shape hundreds of years of the world's view on the devil and of hell. But instantly we can see how this depiction of the devil and and his kingdom carries on to this day, whether where a book or a movie tries to depict hell It often has these layers. It has the the capering demons poking away at sinners. Dancing around in the fires beneath the crust of the earth. So when we say hell, most Australians think of some picture like that. And now 350 years after that, an Englishman by the name of John Milton wrote his own epic poem, Paradise Lost. And Milton's epic has been floating around in the English consciousness for a long time and therefore in the Australian consciousness, having come to us through our English heritage. Folks understood that this poem was not scripture, but it, under- it, it shaped very much their understanding of what they thought the spiritual war was like. Milton's tale is about the fall of Satan and his angels. Their scheming against God and their bitter efforts to take some revenge on God by corrupting his creation and tempting Adam and Eve. It begins with Satan and his army flat on their backs in the lake of fire, blinking and coming to terms with the fact that they have just lost the war in heaven. The devil and his lieutenants sit up. They have a discussion about how to proceed. Should they rally and attack heaven again? They go, no, that was pretty decisive, fairly clear that we're not going to win that battle. God is all-powerful and we understand that now. Should they sit quietly and hope God changes his mind and forgives them? Should they despair because they don't know what else to do? Milton writes about these demons talking and considering things as if they were Englishmen reasoning with one another. And then Satan remembers the creation of Earth, which he took little interest in at the time, and then decides to take advantage of that fact and the fact that the gates of hell have been left open for mysterious reasons and he goes journeying through the cosmos to find earth. He encounters sin and death, his children on the way before finding the garden, sneaking in and tempting the first humans to sin. That's Milton's devil. And Milton's devil is fairly reasonable, all devils considered. When he speaks in the poem, you get a sense of the anger and confusion in him. It comes off very human because Milton is human and he's interpreting the devil through human uh, human eyes and in human terms. Before he leaves hell, he plucks up this defiant courage and he utters his very famous line about it being, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And then builds his castle of fire and basalt in the lake of fire, the pandemonium fortress from which he intends to wage his war against God. All very dramatic and actually quite astonishingly uh, readable imagery. Now, Milton did not intend to make the devil a good guy. That was certainly not his go. The fact that today, the underdog, the rebel against the power, the little guy who fights against the greater empire, the fact that we think of that guy as the good guy today is incidental. But culturally, the devil as a sort of a tragic rebel leader sort of catches on. In 1966, the Satanic Church was founded. It's a ridiculous organization that doesn't actually even believe in the devil. But they see the devil as a symbol of proud individualism and rebellion and and personal freedom. And so they use him as their icon. And around about the same time, bands and genres of music started using the devil and devilish symbols to represent the same idea of independence of freedom and rebellion. This is a predictable product of our modern age, in which independence and self-expression are the highest virtues in a culture that historically remembers Milton's devil as the rebel prince. So we have Dante's devil, this raging, blind, angry monster in the pit of hell, and Milton's devil, a sort of a tragic rebel hero figure, all blended up in the popular culture and then picked up in little pieces, in the twenty-first century. We pick up these ideas sometimes without knowing. The average Australian picks up these ideas where they get mimicked in popular culture. There was almost a movie about Paradise Lost in 2012, but then they ran out of money, as they sometimes do in Hollywood. But you can bet there will be a movie version of it in the next ten years. There's a TV show presently airing called Lucifer, in which the title character is a Miltonish devil, who gets tired of ruling hell, and then moves to Los Angeles to solve crimes. In the comic, apparently, he moves to Perth. There's a very easy joke to make there, but I'm leaning away from it. Now, I describe all this stuff at length, because, not because I think it's scripturally accurate, um, But because it's so deeply embedded in our culture that any discussion about the devil, about demons, about spiritual warfare that happens outside of the church will come with this kind of baggage. But since we know these images are conjured up from artistic history and not from truth and scripture, we can begin to peel away lies about the Lord of lies and understand what it really means to be at war with him. Because our scripture today certainly seems to lean into this claim that we are at war. Our key verses for today, again, come from Ephesians 610 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And further reading makes clear that while the clash of kingdoms is real, the physical war, the armor, the weapons, the violence are a metaphor to portray how severe the spiritual conflict is. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 to 4 say this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we're further told that this is a spiritual war. The participants are not limited just to angels and demons, but also the temptations and instincts in our own spirits. In 1 Peter 2, verse 11, we get, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Romans seven twenty-two to 23 says this. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me we begin to get an image of a war in which we are as much the battlefield as we are the soldiers and the captives. And this makes sense of who we actually know the enemy to be from Scripture. Because as fascinating as the idea of the war in heaven can be, as much uh, interest as the idea of angels and demons crossing swords in heavenly conflict can be, the Bible tells us very little about the devil himself. There's something of a a need-to-know basis sort of feel to it. We're given enough to understand his methods and to sniff around his motives, but not really a great deal more than that. We understand that the principal weapon of the enemy is temptation. Genesis gives us the account of the devil tempting the first man and woman and beginning the earthly theater of this spiritual war in which we find ourselves. And then the Gospels record the devil failing dramatically to tempt Christ, thus beginning the final chapter of that spiritual war. And the prayer that Christ taught his followers identifies temptation and evil as one and the same. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or as it might otherwise be translated, deliver us from the evil one. So now if there are spiritual enemies, demons that the Bible calls powers and principalities waging war against our souls, trying to lead us into temptation, and if God does not actually want us to sin, why does he tolerate their operation at all? Why does he let them do their thing Surely he has the power to cast them away, to lock them up, to destroy them once and for all. But we're also given the impression that this spiritual war is used by God to build up his saints. It's used by him to build up his saints. And that shouldn't surprise us because we know God to use all kinds of adversity to build up the character of his people. Luke 22 31 to 32 says this, Jesus says, "'Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. "'But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, "'and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers.'" "'Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat.'" This sort of draws up a memory of the, the book of Job where the devil challenges God for the right to test another of his servants with suffering. Suffering which is not in fact for its own sake but just a temptation for, God, uh, for Job to curse God's name. And in Luke, Jesus warns Simon that the devil thinks just as little of him. He intends to sift him, to challenge him and then after that sifting, that temptation Simon will be equipped to strengthen his brothers. We know that Simon experiences his moment of fear and shame when he denies Christ three times. But once he turns back, he becomes a pillar of the church of Jerusalem. He becomes one of the most prominent uh, gospel evangelists of all time. He does an incredible work for the gospel and the church tradition in fact suggests that when they did eventually come to crucify him for doing his Christian work, that not only did he refuse to deny Christ, but he requested to be crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord did. That man was sifted. He was reforged by the Holy Spirit in the fires of temptation And the reason he overcame comes out in those verses we just read. Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Now, Christ is our example and we see from him here that prayer is our first and most effective weapon in spiritual warfare. It's how we equip ourselves. It's how we intercede with each other in that conflict, how we intercede for each other in this conflict. And Christ is more than just our example. He's also our savior. It's not just that he prayed that matters here. It's that he was the one who prayed. Christ alone has the ultimate power and authority over all spiritual opponents. And when you are devoted to Christ, when you are called by His name, when you are a Christian, a Christian, you are empowered to pray in His name. So if we remember nothing else about spiritual warfare going forward, we must remember this: We must pray in Jesus' name that our faith may not fail and then strengthen one another. We must pray in Jesus' name that our strength may not fail and that we may strengthen one another. So how do we do that? What does that look like in our prayer life? Well, first, we need to engage the idea with our minds with the right kind of attitude and seriousness. And I like the way that the Scripture likes to use these military metaphors, and I think I'll try and stick with them. When the Soviet Union was equipping their soldiers for World War II, they gave each soldier an infantry primer, a small manual they were supposed to read and commit to memory, that told them a variety of lessons, some a little over the top, about how they should react in all combat situations. This is a short quotation. Do not touch anything unnecessarily. Beware of pretty girls in dance halls and parks who may be spies as well as bicycles, revolvers, uniforms, arms, dead horses, and men lying on roads, they are not there accidentally." A little paranoid. Contrastingly, there's a short story, an uh, a, uh, anecdote, about a commander in the modern American Air Force who was interviewed during the Cold War, and he... Um, well, the, the USAF, the United States Air Force's motto is, Peace is our profession. And the interviewer asked, How can you say that peace is your profession when the United States military has millions of tons worth of ships and aircraft and nuclear weapons and fighting men? Can you really say that peace is your profession? To which he supposedly replied, Peace is our profession. War is just something we do for kicks. We should not be too paranoid about spiritual warfare or too flippant. C.S. Lewis, in the Screwtape Letters, he makes the, the point that the devil delights equally in someone who disregards him entirely and doesn't think about him, and also in someone who has an unhealthy fascination with the devil and with demons. God could have chosen to tell us nothing about the enemy, or he could have given us an encyclopedia on him, but he chose to give us a window into his actions and some simple instructions on how to deal with him. We should take that as our guide. This means that we understand we're part of the war, participating in prayer, being aware of the spiritual reality of the conflict, but not turning over every rock and tree looking for spiritual malefactors causing all problems in life. I've been involved in spiritual conflicts that have involved sleepless nights and weeks of intercessory prayer to help individuals being spiritually targeted in pretty extreme ways. But I've also been in a crowd where a preacher whom I would describe as overly enthusiastic spent an hour trying to perform a healing ministry by identifying the spirits causing people's minor physical aches. and Call a man up and say, sir, I understand you have a sore shoulder. Yes, it's pretty sure. They go, in Jesus' name, I cast out the spirit of infirmity. Oh, yeah? It's all right? It's a little better? Praise God. As if he had a particular reason to believe that there was a devil pinching the nerve in his cervical vertebrae. Can spiritual opponents cause physical pain and illness? Yes. Sure. Absolutely. Should we start with the assumption that demons are responsible for all illness and discomfort. No, that's paranoid. It's a serious sin of presenting a false image of the spiritual conflict we're caught up in, and the slightly less serious sin of making Christians look superstitious and kind of dumb. We must not be paranoid or flippant about the war we're in. And since scripture begins with this military metaphor, I want to continue it as we talk about how we conduct our prayer life in regard to spiritual conflict. So in military theory, you have three levels of planning. You've got strategic, tactical, and operational. Strategic, tactical, and operational. Strategic command is where you develop strategy. It's where a nation or an army develops how they're going to win the war. It's the largest scale of planning for the conflict. It's the big map that the knife flies into and then like the red color marches out to all the nearby nations. That's the strategic level of the conflict. The strategy might be to defeat the enemy by capturing their food supply so that the army is starving and has to surrender. It's the plan that they need to follow to win the war. In World War II, for example, the German strategy was the Blitzkrieg. It meant the lightning attack. It meant as many tanks as possible moving as fast as possible with as few stops as possible. And so as soon as the war broke out, they raced from one end of Europe to the other, from Moscow to Paris. Strategy is the big-scale, world-sized plan of how to win. And the opposite of that is tactics. Tactics are the, the small, specific actions that soldiers and little squads of soldiers take to try and win the battles that they find themselves in. My grandfather was a machine gunner in Papua New Guinea in World War II, for example. And most of the conflict that he was involved in took place at night, so he didn't see a lot of it. He and two other guys, as part of the machine gun team, would get dropped off on a hilltop, and then they'd get the pointed the machine gun in the right direction and they'd say, Start firing bullets and do not stop. Keep firing in that direction. There must always be bullets flying from here to there. There must never not be bullets flying from here to there. When you run out of bullets, pack it up and wait for someone to come and pick you up. That's a tactic. It's a situational, small-scale action to win a battle. So that's strategy up top and tactics way down the bottom. And operations is this middle level that connects the two. Operations is the level full of all the guys pulling out their hair in the command tent trying to accomplish the strategy using tactics. It's not as small scale as tactics, but it's more detailed and practical than the strategy. Operations says if we put enough guys on hills firing into the dark, then we can start taking the enemy's territory and winning the war. So that's strategy, tactics, and operations. And we can consider the spiritual war we're engaged in on these three levels. Because we've been given a very simple strategy. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We know the conflict is going on. We know we're going to be a part of it but the only hope that we have and the only hope that we need is that Jesus Christ is our Savior and that God is working out his plan in the world and that we seek to do his will regardless of opposition or discomfort. So strategically, we pray that our Father will guide our lives, that we will become more Christ-like he will help us encourage our friends, raise our children, edify ourselves to be better warriors in the spiritual war. We know we will face temptation and spiritual opposition. And at that strategic level, we should be asking God to make us ready for those conflicts. Now at the tactical level, things become more varied, more case by case. The enemy has a pretty good idea, for example, of what our weaknesses are. A family's spiritual health may hinge on how well a father controls his anger or how well a mother controls her fatigue. A follower of Christ or someone who is close to following him but not quite there, they might find all of a sudden that opportunities open up to work on Sundays or otherwise to become distant from the places that they would become spiritually enriched and closer to God. This spiritual war is not just an idea or a metaphor. There are real, intelligent opponents doing everything they can to sabotage the kingdom, to sift us like wheat, if you will. For the broad strategy, we think and pray broadly. For the specific tactics, we think and we pray specifically. Like any other prayer, if we genuinely care about the matter we're praying about, if we begin with love in our heart, then we can petition our Father on the issue. You can say, Father God, I'm slipping back into old habits, protect me from the temptations of the enemy. The idea of spiritual war is a useful image here, because if you are under fire in conflict, if you are being shot at, you take cover. And if 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 for some reason you absolutely have to go into a a tempting situation in our lives as spiritual warriors, we don't go alone and we try and have someone else cover us. So my granddad, he fired that machine gun into the dark as suppressing fire. That's the idea to, to make the enemy take cover so that your buddies can move up and take some ground without getting shot themselves. In spiritual tactics, this applies too. So, for example, imagine a man who is a recovering alcoholic. He keeps away from bars and clubs because he knows he is vulnerable there, but he can't avoid going to a friend's wedding without causing a great insult. He doesn't just wade in and pretend there's no problem. He brings a friend who knows his weakness to strengthen him. He has his life group pray for him. He has his church friends pray for him to provide that covering fire as he goes in. And once he makes it through the night, he's not only resisted the temptation on that specific instance, he's a little stronger for the experience. He has built up his reliance on God and his trust in the people of God. That is tactical prayer in spiritual warfare. But it's in this operational level, the level in between, where spiritual, where spiritual warfare makes its biggest impact on a healthy prayer life. And how a healthy prayer life makes its biggest impact on the spiritual war. That's the level where we're concerned about our local mission field and the mission fields to which we send our friends abroad. We don't just pray that God will work in the world on the big scale or that we'll make it through the day on the small scale. We know that right now, for example, there are mission teams Going out with care outreach, preparing to deliver care packages and the gospel of Jesus Christ to folks in small towns and properties in rural Queensland. We know that many of the folks out that way have been struggling against destitution for a long time. And we know that there's a rash of suicides cutting through those towns where the men feel helpless before their families and unmanned before the world because they cannot provide. And I'm very comfortable in saying that is a sustained spiritual attack on those families. The devil here is doing his only trick. He uses physical suffering and mental discomfort to tempt people into sinful action. And at this operational level of prayer, we can intercede for the missionaries we are sending out to those places, to those families. And then to pray for the spiritual health for those regions for the years to come. And likewise, here at home, we don't just pray tactically for suffering individuals, but that the Father would break the bonds that keep our communities from coming to know him. That they would, that not only would the forces of darkness not have a place here in this community, but that the Holy Spirit would bring revival to his people in this place. That he would draw the lost into relationship with the Father in this place. We pray this consistently and passionately and that is how we bring our weapons against the spiritual strongholds and send the enemy of God and of mankind scattering from the mission field. Strategic, tactical, operational. Deliver us from evil. Get me through the day. Bring revival in this place. Friends, we've only been told what we need to know about the devil and his forces. But we know very well who the Son of God is. The Son of God defeated the devil in the wilderness. The Son of God defeated the devil again on the cross. And when we pray in his name, the Son of God will defeat the devil in our world, in our hearts, and in the battlefields and the mission fields in which he has placed us. So let's pray now together to our Savior and our Lord that we can be ready for that battle. Please pray with me. Father God, you are mighty and none can stand against you. Yet we live in a world where you have seen fit not yet to punish all those who oppose you. And in this, you've given us the chance to accept the grace that we've known to come from you. And we praise your goodness and your forbearance for bringing us to you by that grace. And for all the days that we have left to spend in a world still spiritually embattled, we still rely on your goodness and your forbearance to carry us through. We ask you to deliver us from the evil one, Lord. We commit our lives to you and trust that in keeping with your plan for this world, you will build us up into Christ-like followers. We ask your aid and your protection, Lord, that the armor of light for the times in our lives when temptation comes will come upon us, Lord, that we'll be protected and that we can resist that temptation. We ask you convict us to pray for our loved ones when they struggle, And to know when the devil sifts us like wheat that we will come out purer and stronger for it. And Father, shape our prayer lives towards the battlefields you have put in our lives. The missionaries we know, the community we're in, give us the love in our hearts to pray relentlessly that your spirit would break through in these places. We pray for care outreach and their efforts on the ground to bring the gospel and comfort to those suffering in isolation. Cover them with protection, Lord, and break the chains that bind their hearts and communities. Tear down the strongholds of the evil one and raise up communities that praise your name. We commit ourselves to you in this spiritual conflict, Lord. Lead us and we will follow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.